that they can hear your wonderful voice. Perfect. I will uh, do my best to to uh, do my best to indeed try to use my voice in a lovely and soft manner. Perfect. Well, it's great we to should... be here, actually, like live and just doing this because it's it's a different mm-hmm. environment to do this like... like this instead of like just doing it through a, a Zoom webinar. And for anyone that is concerned, we have done a COVID test, and Alexi is negative. He has not had COVID nineteen, so we went from you know the whole social distancing thing to we can actually have a hug and be like, hey, because. Yeah, I've been doing regular tests as well. So, yeah, thank Luckily. you for providing that test. I mean, it's it's great to sort of have that peace of mind because I mean, mm-hmm. otherwise you're in this sort of limbo. Like, do I have it or do I don't have it? But now having that confirmation that I know that at least I haven't had it yet. We'll see how that develops. Yeah, I feel that like a lot of people are in this limbo of, uh, and it's causes a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. No, mm-hmm. um, I think you know what we said before about people, you know got a bit of a cough maybe smoking a bit yeah, and then it's yeah, like oh maybe i've yeah, got uh, yeah, do i have yeah, covid yeah, have i had it yeah. I, I was convinced i had it to be honest uh, the um earlier on yeah um i just i, I kind of talked myself into it that, yeah. like i wasn't even sick but i just had this feeling and I, I was oh and then i kind of manifested this cough yeah just from the fear of it being there and it was yeah, yeah nothing yeah and i mean nowadays i mean i do find myself i mean I mean, like every time going somewhere, like to the movies, you're like, it's like, is this worth it? Like, am I risking things for just to see a movie? But then again, like, I mean, we do need to continue living as well. I mean, we can't just be locked inside. This can't be permanent. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty damaging, I think, yeah. mentally. For no, uh, indeed. I'm I, I'm lucky enough to be in a place where there's a nice view and I can yeah, swim in the river. Yeah, yeah. But you know, if, if you're, especially if you're on your own and you're in, you know, in a small apartment and you've got no, no space to escape and you're just trapped in there, I think it can be no, quite no. detrimental to your mental health. Yeah. And it will be kind of interesting to see how, how people drug use changed or if it changed, did it increase, did it decrease during, during this times, um, global drug survey had, uh, a special survey this year about about this and other things uh, and i think they're releasing some of the results quite soon i think this month when did this start uh this was uh it was on for like a month and a half in the spring and they i think managed to once again collect like hundred thousand people from all over the world i oh. mean their their data sets are huge i mean it is one of the biggest surveys out there and like i mean i'm, I'm Curious to see also because I mean Finland was part of it. We managed to translate mm-hmm. the survey into Finnish to see um, what the data shows. I mean it's it's a snippet. I mean it's hard to make really big conclusions from it. But yeah. um, combining that with other data, you can sort of see that there's probably been some mm-hmm. sort of uh, trends. In... Do you do you think like from people you've spoken to? Um, do you think that like I guess anecdotally is drug use um, up or? Um, well, at, at least it seems like it hasn't been affected availability. Mm-hmm. Like people still can get yeah, hold yeah. of uh, of drugs almost the same way mm-hmm. as, as before. COVID and packages are still moving around, yeah. so even probably more. Uh, I would expect that. I mean, I think it's context specific. So I mean, maybe some populations have had 
problems getting hold of certain substances and they have actually used less or turned into using something else mm -hmm. that's well, my worry is that yeah, people would use yeah. more, da uh, more dangerous substances yeah, yeah exactly i've heard um i've spoken to a few people about like the synthetic cannabinoid um, yeah there's some pretty deadly synthetic yeah. cannabinoids which yeah. are which are now out there and i think yeah. you know people are just taking whatever they can get hold of so it makes it yeah and i mean maybe there are like people producing and dealing like they've had maybe to hold on to big patch and now they just want to get rid of it and maybe mm -hmm. sell it cheap cheaply yep, yep. and then uh so we'll see we'll see how this this develops so um we just what we touched on before about uh, the drug use in finland um your experiences um before you started studying um actually i think we should probably just go go back and you should probably explain again what what your what your thesis yeah. is and um and what you're doing your phd and if that's okay yeah sure uh, i mean my current phd uh the working title is uh, smarter with drugs cognitive enhancement drugs from users perspectives and it's a phd by publication so i have five publications mm -hmm. out and they're kind of different from each other partly uh, i mean two of them are interview studies that we did um, together with two other students at the time so we interviewed our peers and asked about their experiences and motivations about so-called cognitive enhancement drugs which is this nootropics as well uh i mean the literature really for some reason focuses on methylphenidate and dextroamphetamine okay. like these adhd prescription mm -hmm. medications uh but we did in, indeed sort of find that people might use piracetam mm -hmm. or they might use just cannabis or they might microdose yeah and uh, so in a way uh one of I guess my arguments in my PhD is that the whole concept of cognitive enhancement drugs need to include other substances yeah. that is currently including in that sort of definition. Okay. Uh, that was my great discovery <laughs> in a way. Um, is this like some, is this you set off with a goal in the beginning or like as you start and it's a journey and as you learn like the, the thesis and the, what you're studying kind of grows, is that? Yeah, it's more like in, instead of having a hypothesis and doing some mm -hmm. sort of experiment, I'm, I'm kind of like I'm interested in this topic and I just try to find out as much as I can cool. about it. And interviews was one method that I did that. Uh, the other one um, was just sort of reviewing data on stimulant use, both for medical use yep. and so-called extra medical use or non-medical use. Or Is that it, recreational? Um, I mean... I was looking into like data from the International Narcotics Control Board, which tracks people, uh, nation states use of medications, mm -hmm. uh, so stimulants, and I was comparing Finland and the Netherlands. Uh, Netherlands has one of the highest uh, amounts of medication, stimulant medication use in the world. I mean, in, in, in like European, I think Belgiums are a bit higher and Iceland is somewhere like really high for some reason. Is this like ADHD? Yeah. 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 Stuff. yeah okay. uh, I mean, in the US, of course, it's on its own, mm -hmm. own kind of category. Uh, so Finland doesn't have as much, but it definitely has been increasing, especially for adolescents, young people and adolescents. Okay. Uh, I think like between 2006 and 2016, there was a study that it went like five to six fold increase among boys and girls, um, a bit higher with boys. Any uh, idea why? 
Um, partly, uh, I guess, because ADHD has become more and more recognized as a diagnosis. Um, and it's this easy thing to do mm-hmm. to yeah. uh, help a family in need. Like, hey, okay, we can't give you psychotherapy that much, but hey, here's a, here's a stimulant, which is, I mean, there's not that convincing evidence that it actually um at least like on a long-term basis helps people i mean there's a lot of bias in their research because it's usually the pharmaceutical industry sponsored research on this issue and uh, i mean adhd as a diagnosis is one thing and then what's the proper treatment for that should be another thing and like prescription stimulants are quite strong and they're Mm -hmm. quite you know yeah so that would be really should be not the first line of treatment. And I, I think in Finland, it's still not as used as apparently in other other countries like Netherlands here. I had no idea that that was, it was rife here. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite, quite high. And I mean, then I also looked into like EMCDDA data. So the European Monitoring Center for Drugs mm-hmm. and Drug Addiction, because they uh, look at amphetamine and other drug use among young people. And of course, Netherlands was quite higher on this as well, because I mean, amphetamine is produced here. Yeah. It's a bit more um, ravey DJ culture. Um, but then also try to look at what, what research there is on specifically like cognitive enhancement drug okay. use. And in from Finland, there's no data on this issue. Nobody's really looked into it. Like there's these sort of national surveys and they do ask about non-prescription drug use, but they don't include stimulants, for instance, there, okay. unfortunately. Is that like the government there have no interest in, I guess, spending money or on research? I don't think they just, they're not, maybe not even aware of this phenomena. And I mean, I don't really know how, how big the phenomena is in Finland because mm-hmm. there's hardly any data. I mean, I have anecdotal reports yeah. and I've talked to people. I did interview a lot of, uh, adults with ADHD because I was interested in like has you know if you have this medication has your friend asked hey can I just get a few mm-hmm. um, but none of them actually um, at least admit it and I do believe them because for them getting the diagnosis is a one-year process almost of like getting that and then like okay convincing a doctor to give you a stimulant because I mean it does help for some people and mm-hmm. I get that um, but doctors in Finland have been quite reluctant also on prescribing because it is there's a potential for abuse yeah um so it is sort of that balance like okay you don't want to over prescribe also like you do want to give um help to these uh, individuals who might find it useful or might Mm not uh but so none of them had given their uh stimulants for anybody else because it was like i've i've had to fight for this so i don't want to risk losing this by giving it to somebody who you know doesn't necessarily even need it. Have you looked at that elsewhere? Because I, I've, as far as I'm aware, with certain other drugs that can be, you know, especially like opiates, you know, people yeah. are known for selling them yeah. or giving away them. Well, but then I also did uh, interview students here with ADHD, and some of them just don't really like. They don't like it at all. Yeah. But they just have it, and then like then they have boxes of it, and they're like, okay, hey, well, I mean, my friends might you know pay five euros for a pill and mm-hmm. why not just yeah, yeah do that so i mean i when i moved here i lived in a student house 
the first student house ever built in, in Holland and I had like 16 housemates. And that was like good introduction to the Dutch study nice. student world back back in yeah eight years ago when I moved here. So you, I didn't realize you've been here that long. I also sometimes struggle <laughs> with realizing <laughs> that indeed it's been eight years. So you did your you did your first your degree and your masters in Finland. I did uh, my yeah sociology bachelor's and master's in Finland. And while I was almost done with my master's in in Helsinki, I wanted to specialize a bit more in like health sociology. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of scouting around what European universities had to offer. Uh, UK had a few interesting programs, but so expensive that I was like, nah. Yeah. Then like the other Nordic countries had as well, but their masters are always two years. So like, I don't want to spend another two years mm -hmm. doing a masters. And then I discovered at the University of Amsterdam had this really nice medical anthropology and sociology degree in English, one year, reasonably priced. It's in Amsterdam. So like, yes, I'm going to cool. do that. And my initial idea was to do a similar master thesis that I did back in Helsinki, which was looking at political discourse around um, enforced treatment of so-called drug moms. Uh, so when I did my bachelor's in 2009, there was a government report about the involuntary treatment of women who are diagnosed with substance abuse disorder. Okay. So it was a whole discussion around that. So it was, seemed topical to have a look at it. And uh, what, what is that like? Um, the, is that like making women who are addicted to drugs when they're, when they're pregnant or um well drugs so or what's the kind basically of the idea is that to protect the health of the fetus mm -hmm. the unborn child uh if a woman admits or is diagnosed with having substance abuse disorder they would be enforced into treatment so uh basically treating them against their will just to protect the health of the fetus which sort of intuitively like yes of course I can but see it makes sense. It makes sense. But then uh, if the goal is to prevent, for instance, fetal alcohol mm -hmm. syndrome, uh, I don't think that would actually um, really uh, fix that problem because A, now there's already free neonatal care in Finland. It has one of the best neonatal cares in the world when it comes to like you know child mortality and those kinds of things that it's the best mm -hmm. so if there's that kind of law i don't think all the women who would normally go into those checkups would want to go anymore because they're fear of like i might be enforced into treatment so you think it would then drop anyway i think people would sort of uh not i mean some people might indeed find that uncomfortable and not even go and like not be open with their doctors about this yeah. issue as well and I mean, the, the damage that something like alcohol, which actually does more damage than, for instance, cocaine mm -hmm. to the fetus, uh, a lot of that damage is going to be done in the first few weeks of the pregnancy when the woman probably doesn't even know that they're pregnant. So unfortunately, that's not going to like prevent that from happening, but it will probably prevent from the women of then going and getting checkups yeah. and like lessening the damage that yeah. could be done. And also, like, there's no resources to provide this kind of pretty intense nine-month treatment because at the yeah. moment, like, women who want to get help, 
can't. There's like a waiting line because I mean, if the woman goes and like, hey, I have a problem with drugs and I'm pregnant and I need to go somewhere, like there's no where where to go. Like there's no facilities even for that. So how to provide resources of this more intense form of care? Does Finland have um, you know like clean needle clinics and uh, is, how is it on the progressive front with with uh, assistance to drug addiction? Uh, they've had uh, indeed needle exchange mm-hmm. for I think over 10 years already but I mean what I learned um, like from Richard Tramadala who struggled law enforcement and your uh, you were speaking with um, leap but no longer leap um, I'm yeah. not sure how much people heard of this so maybe we can just go back a bit um, yeah uh, working with law, law enforcement uh, police officers who are essentially against prohibition. Yeah, so there are these organizations, um, LEAP is one of them, uh, one of the big ones, Law Enforcement Action Partnership, as they are now called. It's originally from the US, actually, but there's a UK chapter, there's a chapter, I think, now in Germany, and like other European countries are also having their own chapters, and they're mostly, indeed, police officers, uh, maybe mostly not active anymore so Mm -hmm. they'd be retired or have left the force but they are speaking against the prohibition policies because it's ineffective and it is sort of detrimental also for the work of the police in 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 many ways hinders them on on i guess resources that they could be spending uh indeed and and uh i mean we had a little webinar on the global day of action so 26th of june as part of the support don't punish campaign And we had Neil Woods from Leap UK as one of the speakers. We had Professor Nick Crofts uh, from the Center of Law Enforcement and Public Health. And we had Larissa Meyer, who's a great researcher based in San Francisco. And we also had a bit of a video greeting uh, from Clemente, uh, who is part of the uh, Students for Social, no, sorry, Students for Sensible Drug Policy uh, in Ghana. And also Adam Winstock from Global Drug Survey also had a little video Okay. video creating and we sort of tried to imagine the future of drug policing and then what what could be done and what sort of would be the way forward mm-hmm. um and uh, we had a good discussion the recording is on drug ventures youtube channel yep. uh, it was moderated by Thijs Roos, who's a dutch drug journalist and uh, uh, a great guy has a really nice youtube channel also called controlled substance i know this very yep. very yep Cool. Okay. And um, so we tried to indeed have a discussion uh, also with the police uh, of different, what could be a different kind of strategy. And I get that in their line of work, I mean, they are usually the first responders uh, when a problem arises. So they're, they do see probably a lot of the bad side of the things. bad side yeah. of things. And I mean, the question is like, indeed, when, if they see somebody who is having problems with drugs, if they don't bring them to jail or wherever, what do they do? Mm-hmm. Like, where would they direct them um, at that point? And I mean, at that point, there needs to be indeed resources or clinics that they can direct them because yeah. i mean otherwise they're like i mean what can they do besides indeed take them into custody or something um but um this issue uh is something that i think more and more police uh are with but are afraid to talk openly and i mean also i mean it's not necessarily their job to criticize or make 
laws or legislation they are there to enforce it and in that sense like it is the politicians who make the laws yeah that's true but they are of course been very vocal about uh, maintaining the current system i mean they are human beings surely with like a moral obligation i I think like that transcends a job yeah Um, yeah indeed and of course we see it in the u.s now with the black lives matter Mm -hmm. that the police they're not just there's not just few bad apples i mean they're they're more than just few bad apples mm-hmm. and i mean using that kind of excessive force because i mean i have a background in military police uh, as a finnish uh citizen as a male finnish citizen i've had the compulsory military service and i i'm a sergeant in the military police not active i mean i'm in the reserves and it's not like finland is at war so it's not it's more like boy scouts with guns in a way uh, <laughs> sounds kind of fun it was i mean i learned a few things that i hope i'll never have to actually yep. use uh but um i mean how often uh, sorry as a reserve how often do you go um, i mean i I know a lot of people that have never gone sort of back i've been invited a couple of times to do a bit of extra training for whatever reason i'm not entirely sure why are you obliged to do it uh, if you can come up with a really good reason that you can't, then then you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I can come up with a good reason back then. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I've been trained indeed. Like there's with police, I mean, there's sort of steps of how much force mm-hmm. you use in a situation. And I mean, of course, you use, you use le- least in the beginning. Like, I mean, try talking to yeah. a person or like trying to convince them otherwise. And then um but now it seems like people are just bursting into people's houses with like rifles like assault rifles and just sort of having like SWAT teams of like busting somebody with a little cannabis bush in their backyard or something militarized police exactly yeah it's just too excessive and it doesn't uh and i mean we see from prevalence data like i mean it's not like drug use has gone down Mm -hmm. it continues rising so you can argue that it's ineffective of as a prevention measure, I mean, somebody could argue that, okay, if we didn't have that, then prevalence rate would be even higher. It's hard to prove that either way, but I mean, it, it, it yeah. doesn't really seem to like prevent people from using drugs. And I mean, there's, there are death penalties in some countries for drugs and people still use drugs. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> indeed. I mean, it's, I think it's innate human nature that we just want to uh alter this consciousness of, of ours and and i mean for for good and bad sometimes yeah. but uh it's there yeah definitely and it's not just humans of course i mean no, there's dolphins there's other mm-hmm. kinds of mammals who are also want to yeah. uh get high sometimes i think it's important uh even rec- like i've we spoke i was speaking to somebody last week about this um with uh have you been following the uh drugs law the changes in the netherlands it yeah yeah so um uh you know we, we we're kind of trying to bring attention to to this uh, and show and, and normalize or show that like there are normal functioning adults yeah. you know use drugs not everybody who you know drinks beer is an alcoholic you know not everybody who smokes weed is you know or does drugs yeah. is, a, is a complete waster and what we're trying to we actually want to kind of bring attention um and not expose how what's the word like um interview and show a range of people who hopefully can you know in positions of responsibility you know it's unlikely that we're going to get politicians or or lawyers to admit to using drugs on camera but we would like to get people who are functioning adults to to say you know like no i'm 
uh, you know, I'm a 30 year old man and I have, you know, multiple businesses. I employ 30 people and I use drugs occasionally three yeah. or four times a year. I yeah. recreation use drugs and they, they do not have a negative yeah. impact. In fact, I, they have a positive impact you yeah. know, on me. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to try and uh, bring that to the attention because what you, what you see, you see the bad side. And of yeah. course there's a bad side to everything. Yeah. To everything. Yeah. yeah. Is this called high humans by any chance? Uh-huh. Yeah. I've, I've been interviewed for already oh, for high humans cool so I'm, I'm looking forward it was a very pleasant experience actually nice oh so. great yeah <laughs> I, i'll um i'm going to be um i'm going to be interviewed yeah. for it as well um yeah. like we we've got this foundation that we set up the bvnd and, and we're trying to um yeah just have a, a, a massive different uh a campaign that is going to span yeah. all different platforms to try and just draw attention because you know yeah. prohibition doesn't yeah. work yeah, people are still going to get high, and if you make something illegal, you know, right now the Netherlands is very progressive, and if, if they just if they have something like in the UK where there's like a psychoactive substance ban, yeah, well, people those people are going to turn to illegal drugs, which could be yeah. cut, which could have higher yeah. risk. There's and yeah. and just making things a taboo, it makes it hard to deal with the problems. Yeah, you know? um, and I I think what I know about the new upcoming change into the opium law here uh, is that it's targeting at the moment like opioid analogs and maybe synthetic cannabinoids mm -hmm. yeah um, which is sort of hard to argue against as well because I mean like those substances can indeed be quite dangerous mm -hmm. and they can do damage so it's hard to sort of make an argument like no we should not yeah have more regulations or enforcement for those substances but it is sort of still in that sort of prohibition framework mm -hmm. that somehow by prohibiting them, people not are not going to use them or they're not going to get their hands on them. That that's not the case. No. And, no. and indeed, if they start with these, they will probably then start adding other analog things yeah. into there and this sort of continue prohibition, which it doesn't work. But then, and there are luckily now quite a lot of good reports from, for instance, Transform Drug Policy Foundation mm -hmm. in the UK has a new book on stimulants coming out and they have a lot of good reports of like, okay, if we don't prohibit, what do we do? What is legal regulation? What it actually looks like yeah. in practice? And different substances can be dealt differently. I mean, I don't necessarily promote that crack cocaine should be sold at the smart shop but maybe it's sort of a pharmacy kind of mm -hmm. thing yep. where you if you have a, a dependence and you have a prescription then you can go and get your good quality um yeah <laughs> get good quality crack. with some you know <laughs> ways of like safely using it as well yeah and i mean uh so that like crack cocaine in a pharmacy cocaine something like that like fair trade cocaine yeah should be in a smart shop and then coca leaf you should just be able to grow yourself yes yeah and i mean i know during leaves is not really like very western method of consuming mm -hmm. but it's you know it's the mildest way it's like the yep. most safest way uh but there's not really a culture around it here unfortunately but maybe that could grow if it's allowed to and then maybe people would be like happy just chewing some coca leaf and not going for the line of cocaine. Not everybody going to uh, do that switch because also like, yeah. you know, if you chew it, your breath of a coca leaf chewer, 
I've smelled a few times, like it's not pleasant no. necessarily, like, it, and it looks kind of funny. So I, not everybody is just going to mm -hmm. do that switch just because it would be allowed. Yeah. But it might, like even like a small dent in somebody's use on a global scale might actually have quite, yeah. quite good uh, And results. like right now, the illegal drug market is controlled by uh, at least the, I'd say like the cocaine and the, you know, the heroin yeah. market is controlled by pretty extreme criminal organizations, yeah. which yeah. You know, there are a lot of people are killed because of this. Yeah. And if you actually decriminalize and legalize these things, then you just yeah. take that away from them. Yeah. And either yeah. that means there's going to be a switch over where people who were illegal are doing things illegally are going to do things yeah. legally. Yeah. Um, and which means there's a framework to stop them shooting people yeah. or no need for them to shoot people yeah. even. Yeah. Um, and I mean, consumer choice is king in a way. And mm -hmm. I mean, the Global Drug Survey actually asked whether people would be willing to pay more for fair trade cocaine compared to non-fair trade cocaine. And most of them were, I don't remember the exact numbers, wow. but they were like, yes, I'm willing to pay more and cocaine mm -hmm. is already quite expensive, but yep. still they're willing to put some extra if they know that it comes from a source where the farmer has been paid, the mm -hmm. whoever distributes has been paid and all that. And I mean, as an idea, it's like, why not? I guess like that kind of thing is only really possible though, again, with it being legal. You, you yeah, know. yeah, indeed. Um, you were at the UN uh, summit this year, right? Was that this year or? I've been there every year since 2017 as a civil society representative because okay. uh, Finnish Association for Humane Drug Policy is part of IDPC or International Drug Policy Consortium, which okay. is this, um, sort of umbrella organizations for NGOs working in drug policy. And uh, it's been an quite an experience i went there first time 2017 and i mean i didn't really know how things work on that level mm -hmm. and my motivation was to go and like see whether enhancement drug use is discussed on international yeah. policy level i can say after a few years that it is not <laughs> discussed on that level okay. a finding on its own in a way what, what how how does like with that with something like that do you sit you'll sit sitting in a room with all of the representatives from each of the UN member states and do they have a debate or is it just this is what I, and they just read out their things and okay so point. there's simultaneously going on quite a lot actually okay. during the commission on narcotic drugs yeah. uh, which happens in Vienna because that's where the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime is located okay. uh, so there's sort of the the panel which is more like giving nation states um a floor to discuss a few things and that's where they vote on adding new substances into the controlled substances list usually by the recommendation of the world health organization okay and that's sort of a interesting ritual to see like who uh recommends to add this into like whatever the substance is. It's usually like, okay, this has no therapeutic value and it has high potential abuse because it resembles another drug mm -hmm. like this. The non-therapeutic value is like, nobody's looked into the therapeutic value of these substances, but they just, they just assume that. that it hasn't, yeah. doesn't have, because there's no studies they say showing that cannabis, right? Even uh, according to the UN. Well, now WHO did a critical review on cannabis, which hasn't happened since the 50s or was it the 30s? Uh, but luckily there was sort of a push also from the civil society to get this done. Yeah. And 
in that they do re recommend making some scheduling changes. And it's a complicated sort of system because there's, I think, at least three different international treaties, one from 1961, from 1972, then 1988. Uh -huh. And then there was the 2016 UNGAS, the United Nations General Assembly on the World Drug Problem that was in New York 2016. Oh and there's, there's a lot of legal documents that are sort of the framework how we mm -hmm. deal with this. So there's the panel and usually indeed WHO recommends to add this list and then countries vote and they just always just vote yes. Like nobody usually opposes adding another drug into the list. But then it comes to cannabis, the decision to do that vote has been pushed on and on. It was supposed to happen like December 2018. But then they're like, no, we need more time to or the countries need more time yeah, to think who, about who is this. That? Is that like giving, is it the WHO has already said and the UN is now saying the countries need more time or is it the countries are saying they need Countries more time? are sort of like, hey, we need more time to think about this <laughs> issue. And it's, I mean, there's countries like China and Russia that are really against uh, making any changes because they're saying like this will bring, um, give a wrong signal. They're always politicians are like, oh, this is this is oh, giving a wrong yeah. message. Like, what's the message that you're saying now then? Um, I mean, of course, it's highly political mm -hmm. in so many ways. So it should happen this December. It, the reassembled or reconvened CND. So the CND is in March and then they reconvene every December. So this March, when they were again supposed to have the vote, but didn't and postpone it until December. And the changes are, I mean, it's basically WHO saying that cannabis or at least some components of cannabis do have medicinal value. Yeah. That's basically what it sort of says. And what the sort of practical uh, result of that, of like, will medical cannabis now be available for everybody everywhere? No, doesn't no. mean that nation Individual states, still nation have, states yeah. still make their own legislation about this and so forth. Um, so the impact of it is sort of maybe more symbolic, but it's important mm -hmm. symbolic yeah. as well. Like, I mean, the, that sort of denial of cannabis as a medicine has been going on for mm -hmm. hundred years yeah. now about, um, and it's just, Bullshit. I mean, yeah. and I get that it's so complicated as well. Like, I mean, cannabis has so many molecules mm -hmm. that we don't really know how it does what it does to yeah. some extent. I mean, and our own endocannabinoid system is complex enough as well, Absolutely. and how those things interact. There's still, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to spend the rest of my life sort of studying partly that mm -hmm. as well. Because I mean, one of my PhD publications was a medical cannabis patient case study from Finland with a ADHD as the main indication. And Finland has had medical cannabis allowed since basically 2008. Okay. There was a court ruling in 2006 because of a patient who broke his back in a car accident, tried all the opioids, they didn't work. He traveled actually to Amsterdam, <laughs> met a doctor, got a prescription of cannabis, apparently went to a park, used it and just fell like, things just getting into place and like really oh, wow. and he fought to be allowed to bring that prescription back with him i think when he arrived like the customs confiscated he was like no this is my medication oh my god and it, that went to like almost all the way to like sort of 
Supreme Court, not exactly Supreme Court, but was he arrested or yeah, yeah, and he had to like fight this legal battle, and he was luckily helped by this pharmacist, uh, who indeed has been saying for years, like I mean, this is a milder option compared to opioids. Mm-hmm. Why are not we using this? Um, so he manages to open the gates, and actually during that court, they were like, okay, medical cannabis was never illegal in Finland. It was just sort of taken out from the pharmacy. Like 100 cannabis users, and a lot of them said that they use it for ADHD. There was another uh, like uh, multi-country study, actually by my supervisor, Pekka Hakkarainen, about uh, people who grow cannabis for different reasons, and in there as well, like ADHD was quite yeah. high on like why people grow cannabis. And I got intrigued, and I contacted the Finnish medical cannabis patient organization and just asked like hey i'm a researcher i'm interested in this do you know anybody that might have a prescription and then through that i did manage to find a a patient who was originally diagnosed with adhd at the age of 33 uh, used methylphenidate for um i think eight years or something and it was helpful but then also he was starting to experience quite a lot of side effects from it like he's his stomach mm-hmm. had a bit of a hernia apparently and like it's just yeah that means about exactly sure. long-term yeah. use and and then he discovered that there was a small-scale study in germany about medical cannabis and adhd traveled there saw the doctor and he prescribed him with petrocon so the dutch medical cannabis product mm-hmm. And also Pediol, which is another product from them. So Petrocon has quite high THC content, I think like 15% or something like that with bit, very small amount of CBD. And Pediol is like the opposite. It has quite okay. a lot of CBD, but then not much uh, THC. So he, I think, was the first patient in Finland who managed to get a medical cannabis description uh, confirmed by a Finnish neurologist uh, for a neuropsychiatric diagnosis. I mean, pain is usually one of the main mm-hmm. indications for medical cannabis and other stuff. Um, so I think you're one of the first patients who got it for this kind of indication. Wow. And he used it successfully for five years. He had good results from it, uh, especially the combination because the Petrocan, which is the high THC, was sometimes overstimulating yeah uh so combining that with the high cbd one was sort of a good balance and he also discovered that he had a bit of a knee injury and it seemed to help him rehabilitate that quite well as well so he had like other positive uh effects as well and there's one study from the uk uh with sativex Mm -hmm. um with adhd it was a small scale but a controlled trial and they did find some positive um, measures that it showed that it could be helpful, but there's not too much Mm. research in this area still, unfortunately. That's something where uh, America and Canada are actually ahead of the game massively, really. Um, I I actually wanted to ask you about um, how does that work with the, um, with the UN? Uh, uh, Essentially, are they not breaking the rules of the, 
agreements and whatever yeah, it is. The, the it's, sort of, it's sort of the elephant in the room <laughs> uh, that all those states uh, in the US particularly that have legalized not only medical cannabis but recreational mm -hmm. cannabis in great violation of the UN treaties. Um, but nobody really seems to dare to even sort of talk about that in, on, on the UN level. Because I mean, US, of course, historically has been a big uh, funder of all the projects. I mean, now we'll see how that mm -hmm. turns out because Trump sort of pulled the plug on WHO, for instance. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, the vote on December on the rescheduling of some of the cannabinoids according to the um, World Health Organization recommendation, it can still like, I mean, it's a vote. So, I mean, it might be voted down. Like, mm -hmm. no, we're not going to do any changes in this because there's big countries that are really against it. How many votes does it have to have to not? I think just a majority okay. vote. Cool. Um, and there's a list of countries that are now part of that because i mean it's not all the u.n states mm -hmm. uh it, are the, it's the ones that are part of the commission on narcotic drugs and they sometimes change a bit so that yeah. i think there's like 50 countries something like that in there and do you uh, think they're more i mean there, the there was some um policy sort of think tanks uh trying to like okay so these countries possible yes and these yeah. almost like a definite no and I think it's possible that it will be voted yes, but then there's so many politics involved that yeah, that we don't. I don't know what's going to happen. And it's also, not like, straightforward yeah, and logical as it is. yeah. And I mean, like, what's the actual significance of it? Because I mean, there are you already with the existing treaties, you can have medical cannabis programs. If nation states can, mm -hmm. if they want to have that, according to the treaties that are already existing okay. this would just make it a bit more clearer uh in a way and it, it would be a bit more based on evidence yeah. of that rescheduling which is a complicated thing because it's like one two three four and the four is like more strict and one is like it's it's a also a very interesting kind of way, mechanism of scheduling when you said before about uh countries like china um and they say that it's it would send out a, a bad message um do you think that it would that they're right in a way not not that it was not it's that it would be a bad message but like that this would be the beginning steps to say you know next we would be looking at the un legalizing uh or sorry changing the status of no. um psilocybin for example no. yeah and i mean it's sort of the uh, gateway theory of drug policy like mm -hmm. let's start medical cannabis first and then open the gate mm -hmm. a bit by a bit wider and wider and yeah. like yeah and hopefully that is yeah, sort of what, yeah. where, where is it going um and that is but i mean to think that the governments are that are against it are just because they're so worried about the public health of their citizens i mean that's yeah, it's not really <laughs> no. the case i mean there's probably pretty big lobby groups that are either just waiting for their industries to have products ready and then when the change happens and there's already all these companies with their products ready because i mean like i've been to actual you know cannabinoid science conferences and mm -hmm. there's more and more big pharma names in the sponsorship as well and yep. i mean cannabis 
And that's sort of sort of the worry that I have that it will go into that medicalization framework that okay you can use this if you get a prescription from your doctor and you go and buy it from a pharmacist but don't you dare grow this on your backyard i think kind that's of thing. probably what will happen realistically yeah um i know in canada that's that was the worry and i is what is happening yeah. Yeah, there's stricter penalties for people who grow outside of their framework yeah yeah um so the prohibition yeah. 2.0 is like mm-hmm. sort of full effect i uh i actually yeah i I've got friends who are uh, long-term uh, cannabis growers, you know, licensed growers. Yeah. Um, and they said, that, like, they said, it's actually had, it's the worst thing for them yeah. to have it legalized. Yeah. Like, yeah. before they could, like, grow with a license um, and they're allowed to grow up to a certain yeah. amount of plants. And then yeah. now, like, uh, unless some of the licenses were, like, grandfathered in, so they couldn't actually change them. But if they were between a certain date, um, yeah. they've, they've lost access yeah. to it. I mean, same here as well. I mean, the the weed in the coffee shops, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's coming from an illegal market and nobody really knows where. I mean, now they're doing this weed experiment. So 10 municipalities in the Netherlands are going to be part of it. Trying to sign up to it. (laughs) Apparently, they got quite a few applications. Um, Also, now somebody involved. And like, it's an interesting experiment in a way that, okay, hasn't been done in 40 years uh, anything for this backdoor problem as they call it but it's also like it's locking Netherlands for this four-year experiment phase and it's a long time and things happen and nobody knows what happens mm-hmm. after that like what are the measures of a successful experiment yeah. and like I also get from like a business perspective like why would somebody invest into this massively and then after four years the government is like oh no actually no, yeah. we're not we're not going to continue with this um it's unfortunate but it's it's the way things are at the moment what do you um what what do you see with um yeah with psychedelics um now there's uh, a lot more attention um i guess positive attention in the media and it's gone from being you know LSD makes you jump out of a window and all this yeah. bullshit, you know, and like complete fear thing to like actually, whoa, that, you know, I'm regularly seeing articles and videos yeah. of like, you know, the positive benefits of yeah. microdosing or even, you know, full psychedelic experiences. Yeah. Um, I mean, before I moved to Amsterdam, I had really no idea about the current psychedelic renaissance. But then okay. the first semester that I was here, I was, um, a friend of mine just gave me a hint like hey there's this conference called icpr or the nice. Interna- interdisciplinary conference on psychedelic research mm-hmm. by open foundation which is a dutch foundation that's been promoting psychedelic science for a decade i think already yeah and uh, i remember it was in a church um and the first lecture was something like entheogens and like i've never heard of what entheogens are um, this is when you arrived in the Netherlands. Huh? Yeah, so 2012, okay. when they had that conference. And never. I never heard of entheogens. I never knew that, okay, they're doing neuroimaging studies with people on LSD and mm-hmm. psilocybin, and at, which is really like opening you know, our understanding of what, what this is and what yeah. consciousness is. And there was a review study of like the old LSD for alcoholism, um studies that were done in the 50s and 60s and that was like the most prominent area back then like it was seemed to be really helping people yep. to fight alcoholism and i was like oh my god this is amazing like i mean finland <laughs> alcoholism yes uh and yeah like, it's huge alcoholism is a big problem exactly so like hey let's start treating finnish alcoholists 
with some LSD. And that was apparently like the founder of AA was like, that was the, his suggestion for the 13th step of, uh, of the whole 12 step program. Really? Like, I mean, wow. cause it's really about surrendering for mm -hmm. this higher power. And that's one way of getting yeah. there. Um, and at that point, naively, I thought like, if only just people knew that there's this thing going <laughs> on and there's this, all this evidence that's coming up that things would just magically changed and this was eight years ago and like things have definitely progressed like i mean maps or the multidisciplinary association plus psychedelic studies are now in their phase three mm -hmm. trial for mdma for post-traumatic distress disorder they just managed to get another 30 million dollars uh to finish that fantastic and it's it's getting there um but also i mean there's a lot of questions like okay if they do get there how do people have access to it like is it going to be a private yeah. clinic is there going to be health insurance that somehow covers it is it accessible only for those who are can afford it what's the training involved like how do you license somebody as a psychedelic therapist yeah um so there's a lot of questions still but it, it is sort of getting there and uh microdosing is one area that's been definitely getting a lot of media hype and then that's actually also getting into a phase two trial down in Maastricht mm -hmm. uh, for adult ADHD actually so MindMet from Canada the company okay. is now signing up with uh, with their Maastricht University neuropharmacology nice. and they, they're great they've, they've been doing research on um, different psychoactives since the 80s um, and, and they just released a study about how they had an LSD microdosing study and seemed to um, decrease people's pain perception. I mean, it was like, apparently the, I haven't actually read the whole study yet, but like there's that cold water exposure mm -hmm. test where people can sort of, okay, I can't handle this anymore. Yeah. And it seemed like microdosing LSD was somehow apparently maybe blocking some of the pain signals. So, wow, interesting. But I don't think still like, I mean, I maybe it has some potential as a pain reliever, but I, mean, I would still maybe go for like for, for severe pain. I mean, opiates yeah. can't really beat opiates. And that the side sense. effects of uh, taking LSD to relieve pain might be. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I personally wouldn't. But we'll see. I mean, it's interesting discovery. And I mean, mm -hmm. these are going to come. Yeah, I mean, there's probably discoveries that nobody even Definitely, yeah. thought about yet. Um, are you and, covering uh, any of this in your, th uh, in your thesis? I have one publication about microdosing, but it was actually, I used a software that was developed by Digital Methods Initiative, uh, which is part of Amsterdam Media Studies. And they have this YouTube data tool, uh, very easy software and free to use. It's on their website that I just put microdosing as the search word. And it gave me a nice Excel sheet of all videos on oh. YouTube mentioning microdosing and I did this sort of data extraction in 2016, 17 and 18 also have done last year and then going to do this mm -hmm. year. So I'm going to try to sort of track how microdosing develops on YouTube. And I mean, microdosing that how we understand it, I guess now, which refers to this small intake of psychedelics, every subperceptual dose. dose by James Fadiman, who sort of wrote a very small chapter in his book in 2011. Uh, but then it sort of got cut up by media. But microdosing also, I mean, it is also used in pharmaceutical drug 
research yeah. as a phase zero study, like mm -hmm. for toxicology, like you can do these sort of microdosing studies. It's also used in agriculture to provide nutrition to uh, plants in uh -huh. big fields, like okay. microdosing some nutritions. So, I mean, it has several meanings. And I mean, even now, like what is a microdose? Is it 10 micrograms or 20 micrograms mm -hmm. or something in between? Yeah. And because uh, people often like, oh, yeah, I tried microdosing and I felt this. And like, well, that's not really yeah, a microdose yeah. at that yeah. point necessarily. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to dose because you don't necessarily know where it's coming from, how much it really is if you just yeah. buy it online. From, yeah. um, from a shifty uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <Especially>, website. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it definitely seems to have potential for all kinds of things. And I do think like this pain finding, because I mean, the physiology of, or the phys yeah, physiological effects of psychedelics. I mean, we're really focused on what it does for the mm -hmm. mind, but like what it does to the body. Like, I mean, there's been at least anecdotes, people really getting physical relief as well for some something i've not sometimes. actually considered that i'll be honest like yeah. literally like i i mean you know this is it's an absolute passion of mine and i'm involved in it in so in so many ways um uh so yeah i've, I've definitely got a bias <laughs> but yeah. i've never considered the physical um yeah yeah benefit potential yeah. benefits or attributes of it yeah. only focusing on the you know the increase in yeah. focus and uh, possible uh, helping with anxiety and all that stuff and yeah. Yeah, which like i find it amazing to like for my I, for myself like i'm a you know yeah. like I, all the time well not all the time yeah, yeah. I have breaks, yeah. but um yeah. i'm always microdosing and it definitely um i can see a notice in, of increasing focus and i feel more centered um, and what I find is not, I find, I feel it stacks with things because like, there's never, like I take so many different supplements. Yeah. There's never just like one supplement is necessarily doing it all, but like no. when you take this stack and different things together, then you really start to notice the benefits. And since I've been microdosing, I'm like, wow, I really like, no. and you know, my mood is lifted. I've, I've, no. I've been told I'm a lot easier to get on with at work, no. you know, uh, no. that kind of thing. Yeah. And then, you know, now as I have like, um, I run a telegram channel for microdosing okay. and it's got like, or maybe it's not huge. I think like a hundred people on it. Yeah. Um, pretty active. And, um, like the results of like, it's of course it's anecdotal, but the individual yeah. people posting on there of how it benefits them, yeah. how it's changed their life and you know, people who've got like severe anxiety, people who've got depression, yeah. um, and yeah, they they literally said that once they started microdosing, there's yeah, yeah. profound effects. Which yeah. I have a I have a chapter in my PhD about, especially like for cognitive enhancement, mm -hmm. uh, what 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 the research says. There's a nice article that just came out this year, or it was like a chapter in a book where they sort of look also like preclinical studies, and they do I think the conclusions of that were like it does seem to be effective for different mm -hmm. kinds of cognitive enhancement but also i mean again psychedelics there's so many psychedelics like some are better than others yeah. for this particular mm -hmm. uh, practice um, i don't remember exactly what the results are but uh it is and I, I think i mean my argument is that indeed this whole literature around pharmacological neuro enhancement in general should start looking into psychedelics because yep. i mean there's obvious sort of uh, findings there and um, in that i mean psychedelic science literature itself has talked about this idea of 
betterment of the well people Um, and it is there um, I think in so many ways but that it's being used already by like a lot of um, psychologists psychotherapists and um, yeah Yeah. uh, just illegally they're just putting themselves at risk which is really shitty it really sucks And I've been following quite closely how this develops. I mean, my younger brother who's a medical doctor in Finland has is the only medical doctor in Finland who's gone through the MDMA and psilocybin therapy training. So they're trying to get at least MDMA to PTSD study also in Finland as part of the MAPS phase three. They tried to get psilocybin for depression study off the ground as well, but they couldn't get an ethical approval because ethics review board consulted some psychiatrist somewhere and he was like i don't like this idea no way so it's just sort of and they've done it twice already but they still just get the same result can they go to other like another route well that i mean there's one yeah you could maybe try to do like independent ethical board Mm -hmm. um or indeed because i think this was like national ethics board but you could do like a more local maybe like a hospital ethics board okay. and so i mean could be but it, i get that it gets frustrating as well you just sort of because the argument is like this is not even worth studying like why do you mean this is not worth studying like of course it is look at it like the results of phase one and two like they're pretty promising yeah. i mean of course there's a lot of phase three trials that do not make it like mm-hmm. in yeah. general uh, but this is like promising enough for a something that hasn't like depression, like SSRIs are the latest thing that we've developed for depression. And like that was nineties, we need to come up with something else because I mean, those things help some people and some people not like the success, success rate in that is not really great. And there are a lot of people with depression. Like, yeah. and yeah, I, I, you know, more and more we're finding out like, like, you know, there's, a mental health crisis globally and yeah yeah and with corona just... as well like i mean that's gonna just get yeah, bigger that's gonna... that's gonna get bigger I, I mean we have a global post-traumatic stress disorder just from, from i guess just mm-hmm. being aware of this global pandemic yeah there's like uh like a, a weight i think a lot of people speak of that they feel right now just of life you know yeah. like the pressure of like not being able to touch yeah and interact yeah. and you know all this kind of all, like quite you know standoffish um yeah. Yeah, that yeah. can't be good mentally yeah, <laughs> yeah so drugs no hugs <laughs> <laughs> or oh, drugs without hugs would be pretty, yeah. pretty horrible <laughs> oh my god but uh uh yeah so the icpr in 2012 like what was my mind opening sort of mm-hmm. about this field of science and then I was a bit more involved in 2016 when they had their last conference. Uh, I was helping out as a volunteer and doing some video editing. A lot of the presentations are on the Open Foundation YouTube cool. channel. And now on the 25th of uh, September, they're having the ICPR or ECPR because it's a webinar. Uh, okay. They were planning on having it uh, in Harlem, the Dutch Harlem mm-hmm. uh on in may but because of corona they had to cancel that and they sort of kept thinking like are we postponing this until next year or are we just going to try to do a webinar and like there's a lot of great people there's like a team of 20 30 people behind making this webinar like the best psychedelic science webinar so icpr2020.net i've got a link to that in the um there's a list of speakers i mean we got plenty of the big names and 
and uh, it's just gonna let's let's see how how we manage to do this in this kind of webinar form i mean it's everybody knows i mean we've had our technological difficulties here as well so i mean technology can allow all kinds of great things but especially when it works <laughs> yeah we're still, it's like um we're, we're learning to run before we can walk maybe yeah, yeah. um so there's definitely going to be stumbles yeah which yeah <laughs> inevitable because we're now on part three of the podcast um <laughs> uh, and we're just keeping this exciting yeah exactly <laughs> and it's good to have people uh, to see that people are switching over so it's like, oh yeah. someone listened to the first one oh now they're on to the next one <laughs> yeah and hopefully i can use technology to merge it all together yeah. and make one one thing and that and that's sort of um my phd sort of theoretical framework is to see drugs as technologies mm -hmm. or pharmacological neurotechnologies to be a bit more specific because i mean um there's of course pharmacology for the body and, and that kind of stuff and my argument there is partly because of this divide between drugs and medicines yeah. which is just getting so blurry at this point because you can use medicines for as a recreational thing and you can use recreational drugs as a self-medication yeah. so like to kind of go beyond this sort of dichotomy why not just think all of these molecules as technologies because if you think of technologies there's somebody who designs the technology the engineer or i mean you, you know doxy for instance as well mm -hmm. who comes up with new molecules um so there's a designer i mean designer drugs is yeah, a good example like i mean yeah. somebody designs this somebody produces it which also what i understand from chemistry a bit that it's oh, i mean doing a small molecule sample is one thing Scaling making it up. making it mm -hmm. big is another thing which yeah. you need to have quite sophisticated laboratory yeah. equipment in doing that and then you know somebody distributes it to by mm. using all kinds of technologies or yeah. techniques i mean there was this whole thing about dropping dr cannabis um, again i just want to really apologize um for the technical issues I'm not sure what's been going on. Zoom keeps coming up with these pop-ups occasionally telling me that um, they it switched the microphone or it just doesn't say anything. And I hear from, from the listeners that you can't hear us anymore. So we but we're enjoying ourselves. So yeah, uh, like yeah. I'm the only, the only upsetting thing is when it breaks up the flow. Yeah, Cause I'm, yeah. you know, this, I could, yeah, so much to talk about yeah uh, we were just um we were talking um oh, about fish. the fish yeah <laughs> fish and ssris uh, i'm not sure how much uh of this where, where it cut out just before that but alexi you, you were just saying that they're finding traces of ssris on fish um, and other other creatures of course um i mean and it's hard to say of course what the actual impact of that is but it is sort of worrying in in many ways because yeah. i mean like they are delicate ec ecosystems and i mean introducing something like that into it might might be damaging in the long run even in the short run we'll see and indeed uh i was part of this uh research project called chemical youth mm -hmm. which was here at the university of amsterdam and uh they had really interesting ethnographic projects and they developed this sort of interview method called head to toe 
so they interviewed uh, young people mostly about their use of chemicals. And the idea was that you start here, like what kind of chemicals do you use in this part of your body? <laughs> and then you start sort of going down the whole body and then people start thinking like, oh yeah, well, I, mean, I use shampoo, I use conditioner, I use this and I use that. And oh, well here I use like a face cream and I use all this and I use that and like, you know, nail polish and like, uh, and like we do use chemicals yeah indeed so it is sort of we're immersed i mean we're made out of molecules mm -hmm. in, in so many ways yeah um and uh we yeah do need to sort of go beyond this sort of divide that there's bad drugs and good medicines and mm -hmm. and just sort of look at them as just what they are and they're molecules yeah molecules that have an impact and and uh, affect our molecular molecules no. really that's no. it's just all different reactions and interactions and it's the same like with the thing with with the technology yeah like all of the we're just it's just like connecting us every we're just on this so i think it's important that we're on this path of of humans just um making more connections with with the universe and with the world around them yeah so whether that's through having zoom uh meetings and uh, camera that is filming us and other people are watching yeah. us whether that's uh taking some uh truffles or you know and, and feeling like one yeah, yeah. And, and it's a collective effort and i mean and people i guess need to realize as well that like everybody on some level is a drug user mm -hmm. it's just like the definition of drug has been really reduced to mean only these drugs, yeah. not the other ones. I mean, yeah. sugar, coffee, tea, alcohol, all those things that are daily, daily kind of consumer mm -hmm. products. Yeah. Why aren't they drugs and they're psychoactive? Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's the whole There's thing a... in the UK that they accidentally banned right, everything. Exactly. You know? exactly. Cinnamon. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that we should probably start to, we should probably wrap this up. Um, I don't know if there's anything, um, anything you want to say to address to people or any, uh, like obviously any links and stuff, I'll, I'll put them in, in the video, but if there's anything you think people listening should check out to get more information on what you're doing um, and the project you're involved with. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm at the moment helping with indeed the ICPR 2020. So ICPR.net interdisciplinary conference on psychedelic research happening at the end of this month is it's going to be an a great e experience yep. i think okay. and to people to get the latest research on the field of psychedelic yep. and i have plenty of material on my youtube and instagram which is cool. drug ventures it's been sort of a uh, visual method project as a anthropologist sociologist i mean anthropologists Traditionally, you know, they do field work, they go somewhere yeah. and then take field notes, mm -hmm. which I always thought is a bit unreliable method because I mean, you're trying to do kind of two things at once you're observing and writing or like you're yeah. observing, putting in your memory and then writing and you cannot capture everything yeah, and it's hard lost, to yeah. translate that into for other people. So in 2016, I was in New York and I bought this 360 camera and just started using that as my way of capturing what I'm observing. Cause I mean, that captures everything I see and everything I don't see mm -hmm. because it actually, you know, captures what behind, I yeah. behind me. 
And after some time, I had all this video footage. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know what to do with it at that point. But then it was actually uh, Donald Trump's inaugural day. And I was like, oh, fucking, I'll just put things, things on YouTube and start my YouTube channel and just try to get this wow. spread somewhere. Because it felt like, okay, now it's gloves off, mm-hmm. kind of like well, I need to do something. Yeah. Um, and there's different kinds of videos from conference talks to um, interviews. There's a few projects that I'm working on. One is called Rockstars of the Psychedelic Renaissance. I've been uh, informed about this. Yeah, Yeah. so (laughs) we've been- I signed the thing. Um, uh, um, uh, Was it for the the Summer of Love? They got me to sign the um, the poster. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we've been interviewing different kinds of rock stars (laughs) in, in, in this field. And just ask four simple questions from everybody. And it's like, who you are? What do you do? What are you doing here? It's been usually at a conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to Breaking Convention in London twice. We went to the Altered States Conference in Berlin and then Beyond Psychedelics in Prague. Nice. And uh, we asked indeed, like, who you are? What do you do? Why you're here? And what was your first and or most significant psychedelic experience? Great. And for some reason, quite a lot of people have been open and shared that cool. and I've been very pleased uh, to see that and I understand that not everybody wants to mm-hmm. uh, come out from the psychedelic closet uh, <laughs> so to speak yeah. because it is still stigmatized and it is still something that people might perceive that all oh, this is gonna you know damage the objectivity of the scientists if they have experiences yeah. like this but then I mean, look at sort of what happened with like LGBT and gay movement. Yep. Like, I mean, it was, it started by people just coming out like, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. This is what I do. And there's nothing shameful about this. I agree 100%. I think it's so important uh, for, for people just to be open and say, no, yeah. I, I use drugs. For, yeah. And and there's a lot I'm of us. I mean, there's, there's a lot of us, yeah. <laughs> I would say. If you just look at prevalence rates, I mean, there's quite a few people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I mean, um, drugs are not for everybody. I, I mean, there's people that, whether it's legal or illegal, have no interest in yep. using. And I, and I mean, that's your choice. And yep. I respect that as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. As long as they respect mine. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Don't infringe on your, your yeah. right to, yeah. to experiment and experience the universe yourself. And yeah. yeah. I mean, cognitive liberty, I like the concept mm-hmm. of, uh, I mean, we like to think that we have a freedom of thought and freedom of expression. And I mean, if we can change our neurochemistry, which is something that makes mm-hmm. us, yeah. us, um, then, we, then we don't have that kind of liberty. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I will post any links to this. Uh, we still are live with the audio, which was good. I, I just thought it flashed then. So I had a, a quick <laughs> moment of, oh no, is it going to be another, just another rejoining? Um, maybe we'll, maybe, so much, maybe we'll do a third time. We, 100% time. we'll do a third time. Um, third time lucky. I, I'm up for doing one, um, you know, fairly soon. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. um, you know I, I'm, we've got so much to talk about and yeah. Yeah, it would be nice to not have it broken up by yeah, yeah, yeah. so thank you very much for your patience everybody who's watching thank this on you. the live um and everybody who's watching this after if you see things spliced together and it's a bit choppy and uh, thank you um thanks to alexi thanks to everybody thank else you. who's supporting um 